Montgomery Boyce once asked this question. He said, what is the difference between a terrorist and a church music director? And the answer is, you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy in chapter 4. I didn't know we were finishing early. I thought I was taking you right up to the max. Uh, so uh, we can go longer if you want. I don't know anything else, but we can go longer. I... 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're just going to have to start arbitrarily at chapter 4 in verse 1, even though it starts with the word therefore. And while the words of Scripture are inspired, certainly the man who figured out the chapter headings was not. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. May I suggest the time is already here? But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul gives a very grave and solemn charge because of the evil of the time, and you could read about that in chapter 3. Basically, Paul is saying the world has lost its mind. It's really nothing more than what Ecclesiastes said this is madness. And because of the tendency of men to turn their ears away from sound doctrine to stories, and we read about that, you could say it this way, as far as Paul was concerned, the church had lost, I mean, the the world had lost its mind and the church was losing its moorings. So he exhorts Timothy to show an extraordinary and unwearied diligence in faithfully executing his ministry of preaching the gospel. Paul saw the end of his own life and ministry approaching. In his own words, he was already being poured out as a drink offering. He saw the time of his departure drawing nigh, and that likely referred to how he expected to to die as a Roman citizen. He couldn't be crucified, so in all likelihood, Paul knew that he would be beheaded. And for all he knew, these would be his final words to Timothy. And so as Paul looks back on his life, he summarizes it in three short phrases. You think of what a life Paul must have had. He was saved when God knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus. Then he personally went to seminary with God for three years. He had the equivalent of two doctor's degrees by the time he was 21 years old. 
He had this unofficial title as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote most of the New Testament, and he had seen and done things other men couldn't even dream of. Today, he'd be on TBN, he'd have a television show, he'd be making millions. Now, Paul wouldn't because he had too much integrity, but anybody else in that situation would have. And yet, when he summarizes his life, he reduces it to these three statements. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I kept the faith. Can you imagine taking the entire life that Paul had experienced it, and when he summarized it all, he says those three things. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I kept the faith. That's somewhat reminiscent of Calvin's assessment on his deathbed of his reason for having assurance of salvation. He says, they said, Mr. Calvin, are you sure that you are in Christ? He said, I have good reason to believe that I have the root of the matter in me. What a statement of humility. And if that's what John Calvin felt, maybe that's the most that many of us can hope for. But if we look at this more carefully, we see that Paul is really giving us the basis, basics that we all need to look for if we're ever given to self-assessment. I remember one time being part of an ordination group, and I asked the man, on what basis... Do you believe you're a Christian? He says, oh, well, I've never doubted my salvation. I voted no on the basis of that. A man who's never doubted his salvation has never once obeyed the command of Paul to always be examining yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, the questions we need to ask ourselves when we evaluate our spiritual condition at the end or even midway through are the same ones. First of all, did I fight? Second, did I finish? And three, did I keep the faith? Or if we're not at the end of our life, we could ask this, am I fighting the good fight? Does it look like I'm going to finish? And am I keeping the faith? These three are like Solomon's threefold cord that's not easily broken. This is Paul's triumphant declaration of himself. And it's his three marks for determining whether or not we've been faithful. And once again, it is our job to be faithful. It is God's job to be successful. We are always called to be faithful, and the praise given by Jesus Christ to that servant is to the good and faithful servant. One of Paul's great themes is that of endurance. I remember years ago hearing R.C. Sproul say that the next sermon he heard on endurance would be the first sermon he'd ever heard on endurance. But Paul talked about it at great length. And those who've heard and read Paul would have heard a lot about endurance in just his letters to Timothy alone. In Ephesians, he tells Christians four times in six verses to stand firm. Hold your ground. That's Paul's command to Christian warriors. If we could put it in the vernacular, hang in there. Hang in and hang on. In our American culture, we are so oriented towards victory. We can barely remember the names of those who finished second in a pennant race or those who lost the World Series, unless it happened to be our particular team. You know it's the Boston Red Sox every year, so you don't have to ask that question. 
And our athletic mindset is not just victory, but total and glorious victory. They fired the coach at Nebraska last year because he wasn't winning by a big enough margin. The team who loses the Super Bowl isn't remembered for being better than 26 other teams. It's remembered of as a loser. Even our language reflects it. We speak of win-win situations, and everyone is a loser who doesn't come in first. But for the Christian, we win by lasting. We win by enduring. And that brings to mind the words of that great American theologian, Rocky Balboa who reflected the night before his title fight with Apollo Creed, tomorrow night I'm going to get my face kicked in. But if the bell rings for the final round and I'm still standing, then I'm going to know I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. That's pretty good theology. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Our goal as Christians is to still be standing when the bell rings for the final round. Paul speaks of the Christian life as wrestling. He talks about it in terms of a boxing match. I beat my body. I bring it into submission. He says, I buffet my body. It's not I buffet my body. That's bad hermeneutics. Many of us do that. We buffet our bodies. Why aren't we to concern ourselves with victory? Because victory's already been won. Christ has already won the victory. The war is over, my friends. God has won the battle and He's already declared us more than conquerors. So it is our job to last. It is our job to endure, to stand firm, to fight, to finish, and to keep. And you say, well, if God has already won the victory, why fight? Because we're commanded to. There are some ongoing skirmishes, just like after World War II was over, there were still some people who hadn't figured out it was over who were still fighting the U.S. troops on some of the islands in the Pacific. Now in that statement, Paul uses some very interesting words. When he says that he fought, the word is from the Greek word agonizo, from which we obviously get the word agony. Paul's fight was agony. The Christian life is a war. It's not a ride to Disneyland. I always have to be careful what coast I'm on because on the East Coast is Disney World and out here is Disneyland. One of the reasons so many professing believers wash out is because they don't have a clue what they've gotten themselves into. And how many of you have heard invitations like this in your past? Come to Jesus and all your problems will be over. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on the guy that tried to sell you that baloney? If you're like me, your life didn't get complicated until you got saved. Before, there was no fight. Before, it was just you and your sin, and you were just picking which one to give in to. And now, all of a sudden, you're striving to be holy. And now, you're in a Galatians 5.17. You can't do what you want to do. If you try to be holy... What's left of your sin nature will fight you. If you try to sin, the life of God within the soul of man will fight you. It's a 24-7 battle. No wonder we're tired all the time. Paul's analogies regarding the Christian life in 2 Timothy 2 are those of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And those speak of warfare, 
hard training, and patience. Now let me ask you this question. What three things do you imagine are more conspicuously absent from most modern descriptions of the Christian life? Warfare, hard training, and patience. Some of you, although I I hate to recommend this, some of you ought to watch what passes for Christian television just to get yourself angry. It's what I used to do before I'd get into the pulpit. I'd watch a little bit of TBN just to get myself mad before I went to preach. There's so much blasphemy and error being spoken out there, it's no wonder that people are washing out. But what invitation can you remember hearing recently that promised you these things if you'd come to Christ? War, constant training, and ongoing exercises in becoming patient. Paul had been a good soldier, but he was a battered and bruised warrior. In Galatians 6, he tells us that he bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And the word there is literally the stigmata, the scars. Those are the marks of the Lord Jesus. All of you have them somewhere if you're in Christ. Because you've been paying a price to be in that war ever since you declared yourself on one side of the battle or the other. You have had the full forces of the powers of darkness against you ever since you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And we know from Paul's other writings that this isn't a physical war. That would be much easier. You could see the people you're fighting. This is a spiritual war with spiritual adversaries, and they don't fight fair, and they don't go by any rules of engagement. Paul had to fight himself, for example. And then he had to fight the powers of darkness. He beat himself up. He was beaten up by his enemies. He said he made himself black and blue. He was tossed and gored and beaten to a pulp by the enemies of the gospel. And so in one place he says this, we're knocked down, but we're just never knocked out. And we get knocked down a lot. And if you don't, It's because you're not in the war or you've taken an unauthorized leave of absence from the battle and you're absent without leave. It's a daily fight. He says we are always carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus. Every morning it starts all over. There's no rest in this life. As soon as we open our eyes, the fight starts again. No neutral zone. No secession for holidays. There's no time off. No sick days. There's no truce ever. Listen to what Paul, the great warrior, some of what he had to endure. From 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I have been in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, of the Jews, five times I received forty stripes save one. The significance of that is this. Forty stripes was guaranteed death. So five times the Jews beat him thirty-nine times and stopped. And you can imagine the great apostle saying, please, just one more. 
Get it over with. Let me go to heaven. Do me a favor. They wouldn't do him a favor. Can you imagine what his back looked like? He says, I bear on my body the scars of the Lord Jesus. 195 marks on his back. Three times I was beaten with rods. That would be over and above the 39 times 5. Often I was, once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. How's that for the normal Christian life? But he's not done. Besides those things that are without, that which comes on me daily... There is the care of all the churches. He puts that at the end. And only a pastor will understand that. It's like the person who said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is an idiot. And he's never heard an unkind word. Sticks and stones will hurt you, but you get over those. How many of you remember one of your early school teachers telling you you were stupid? R.C. Sproul says that he had teachers who told him, please don't ever think that you can write. And he says he had one teacher who finally said, R.C., don't you ever let anybody tell you you can't write. You are a good writer. And that inspired him to start writing. If that person is a Christian, can you imagine the treasures in heaven they have been accumulating over the years? And here Paul says, they've beat me within one stripe of my life one to five times. I've spent nights in the ocean because of shipwrecks. I've gone without food. I've almost uh, been cold to the point of dying. I've had all these things. And what's worth, worse, I've got to take care of the church. As I said, a pastor will know what that is. Did all these things hinder the work of the gospel? No. Paul says this, I suffer unto bonds, but the Word of God is not bound. In Philippians 1, he said, these things turn to the furtherance of the gospel. And he says, because of them, many of the brethren have become more confident and are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. In other words, Paul set an example of suffering that others say, if he can do it, I can do it. And you know sometimes that martyrdom encourages people to step forward for a cause. In verses 29 to 30 of Philippians 1, he lets us know it's been granted to us on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict. When God calls somebody, when God elects somebody, He not only calls them to salvation, but He calls them to fulfill the sufferings of Christ. 
We need to let people know what they're getting in for. We wouldn't have so many false converts. As Arthur Pink said, we've so watered down the gospel, even the non-elect can't refuse it anymore. And he said if the gospel were more faithfully preached, we'd have fewer people professing to believe it. We're in the same fight as Paul was. This isn't for the elite. This isn't just for apostles. This isn't for the super saint. This is for everyone who names the name of Christ. What's the point? If you're not in a fight, you're not a Christian. That's the message of Galatians 5. The Christian life is a warfare. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh all day, every day, 24-7. So this is a question that must be asked of everyone who asks, considers himself a Christian, which is to consider yourself a soldier. Are you fighting? Is there, as Christopher Love called it, a combat between the flesh and the spirit? Do you feel torn between what your body tells you it wants and what the Scripture tells you is acceptable? Now, please note this. I didn't ask you if you're winning. I just asked you if you're fighting. We're never commanded to defeat Satan. That's Christ's job. That's not ours. We can't even get our kids to go to bed at night. I mean, this is the odd thing. I get such a kick out of seeing all these health, wealth, and prosperity guys, these name it and claim it guys, binding Satan and commanding the demon of cancer to come out of this guy or this leg to grow. Wouldn't you think if they had that much power, the first thing they do is heal those hair pieces? <laughs> Wouldn't you think they'd do the lesser to the greater? I mean, they can raise the dead, but they can't get a decent rug? Wouldn't you think they could at least pull a card out of a deck or something first and show that they've got something going? People giving orders to Satan. But it is of eternal value to ask ourselves if we are fighting. Am I fighting the sin in me? Am I fighting my flesh? Am I fighting that which opposes Christ and His Gospel? Because if I'm not, I am aiding and abetting the enemy, and that is treason. And again the question, but you said God has guaranteed the victory. Why fight? Again, because God says so. We are to obey not when we understand, but always whether we understand or not. God has an infinite right to ask anything He wants of us, and we are under infinite obligation to obey Him. And notice that there are only two options here. We're either fighting Satan or we're entertaining him. There's no such thing as indifference when it comes to spiritual battles against spiritual wickedness. Jesus Himself said, He who is for me, he who is not for me is against me. You see, there's no conscientious objectors. We're either for Christ or against Him. Well, that's the first one. Are you fighting? The second mark of faithfulness Paul points to is that of finishing. Again, he doesn't ask if we won the race, only did we finish. This is a marathon. It's not a hundred-yard dash. No one's keeping track of time, by the way. There's only one measure of success here, and that is finishing. In Hebrews 12, where we're told that since we have so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
The idea here of witnesses is not that they're judges or timekeepers, but that they are cheerleaders, if you will. They have crossed the finish line, and now they have turned around, and they are cheering us on. They're urging us not to give up, but to keep putting one foot in front of the other. When I played college football at Azusa Pacific, it was a college then, and we used to play our games up in the hills, and the smog was really bad. And so we used to have to run up there to get in shape, get used to breathing the smog. And our defensive coach, we would always invite schools from Utah and Arizona and Oregon where they had all this fresh air to come down and play us. And then the night before the game, he went around lighting smudge pots all around the field to try to give us some advantage. It doesn't help because we didn't have any good players. But We had this thing uh, during what we call Hell Week that was uh, called a Big Three. It consisted of running 100 yards down the field, then turning around and backpedaling 100 yards, and then getting down and bear crawling 100 yards without your knees touching. Well, part of what happened was when you run this way and then you run this way, you reverse the muscle tone, and then you get down on your hands and knees and your arms are likely to give out. And the coach was there with his bull whip, and you could tell the players who weren't in shape because they were the ones heaving all over the field, but the players who finished were standing at the line. They were doing a little bit of self-interest because they knew if one guy dropped to his knee, we all had to do another one. And so they were encouraging all the rest of us Come on, you can do it. And that's the cloud of witnesses we have. They're saying, don't give up now. You're almost home. Keep going. You'll do it. And note that we are to run that race. By the way, that word is agonizo. We are to run that race with endurance. We must pace ourselves. We can't wear out too early. I'd interest you to know where that word marathon came from. In 490 B.C., the Athenians won a crucial and decisive battle over the forces of the Persians on a plain near the small Greek coastal village of Marathon. And one of the soldiers was sent non to run nonstop from that battlefield to Athens to carry the news of the victory. But he ran so hard that he fell dead at the feet of those to whom he was to deliver the message. And the distance between that battlefield and Athens was just over 26 miles. And that's where we got the idea for the marathon. Or I could explain it to you this way. Some years ago, it's probably been 25, maybe 30 years ago, I lived in Wheaton, Illinois. And I used to meet a very, very dear friend of mine at the track at Wheaton North High School Two mornings a week, we would get together, we would pray in his car and really minister to one another, and then we'd go out and run. Now, my friend had been a quarterback at the United States Naval Academy. He backed up Roger Staubach. And when Roger Staubach graduated, my friend Bruce took his place. He was the most valuable player in the Gator Bowl in 1966, he was an All-American in baseball at shortstop, and he was drafted by a pro baseball and a pro football team. But he went to Vietnam, and he got shot up, and now he's physically a mess. I, on the other hand, had been a small college guard. He came out in the nylon suit with Adidas on it, looking for all the world like a Division I athlete. 
and I came out looking like a grunt with my old sweatpants and hood and things like that. And so we met at the track, we stretched a bit, and then we took off running. And he and I were just jogging along nicely. I mean, this wasn't competition or anything. And then I started to pull ahead a little bit. And then I pulled farther ahead, and then even farther ahead. And by the end, I was a full one-third lap ahead of this Division I athlete. And I was standing there, <laughs> heaving, feeling very good about myself. And then reality set in. He planned to go around more than once. And I was ready to die. Now that's what happens to so many in the Christian life. They think they're only going around once. They think it's a sprint. It's a marathon. And we're to keep running till we die. And the only measure of how well we did is this. Did you finish? Did you finish? Because if you finish, you win. Now, if this is the measure of success, that to finish is to win, what does it say about those who aren't even running, much less finishing? And the third of Paul's marks of a faithful Christian is this. He keeps the faith. The Greek word carries the idea of watching over or preserving. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul had instructed Timothy to guard the word which had been entrusted to him. It's the same word. We have to remember, by the way, that this is God's Word. It's not ours. We don't get to play fast and loose with it. We have been entrusted with it. It's a treasure to be guarded. It is the faith, as Jude says, that has been once for all delivered to the saints. There are no new meanings or interpretations of Scripture. If it's new, it's wrong. Because it's what it meant when it was written, not what it means to us now. That's application, but it's not interpretation. One of my favorite uh, things in Christianity Today is the cartoons, and sometimes that's the only reason to get Christianity Today is some of the cartoons. But I remember one years ago where they had a group sitting around in what would pass for a Bible study. And usually that's false advertising because nobody studied anything. It's just a group of people coming together to pool their ignorance. But anyway, they had this. The pastor was at the front of the circle and he read the verse. Paul says, I have been in chains for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, what do you think that means? And so the first person says, well, I think Paul is speaking about addictions because I know I have been chained to certain things in my life for years now, and they really have me held captive. And the pastor rolls his eyes, and he says to the next person, what do you think it means? Well, you know, it reminds me of Aretha Franklin. Chain, 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 chain of fools. And they go all the way around the circle, and the last person gives his opinion, and then they say to the pastor, what do you think it means? And the pastor holds up his Bible, and he says, well, I I think it means just what it says. Paul was in prison. He was in chains because he wouldn't stop preaching. And in the last frame, one of the people turns to another and says, I told you he wasn't relevant. (laughs) The Bible means what it says. Unless we have good reason from the Bible to believe that it means anything other than exactly what it says. 
And it's our job not to play with it. Our job is to keep it. To keep the faith that has been once for all entrusted to the saints. It has no new meanings. Our job is to find the original meaning and to live according to it. It's not ours to interpret as we please. It's not ours at all. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the Gospel of Don Kistler. It's been entrusted to ministers of the Gospel to feed the people with and to guard it with your life. That's what Moses says. These are not just words. This is your life. And we are to watch over it and guard its purity and preserve it in its pristine form as much as is humanly possible. And when we stand before Jesus Christ, He's not going to ask us if we developed any new interpretations. He won't ask us if we found any novel insights. He won't ask us if we were able to find a new way to reach our generation by contemporizing the message. I about ripped a t-shirt off a teenager a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is my homeboy. This is simply not an option the Bible offers us. There's only going to be one question. Did you preserve the faith? And did you guard it? In Revelation 14, that's the definition of perseverance for the true believer. They keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we're so prone to want to build monuments and legacies. They're, they're really bad about that over in England. There's a monument to everybody who's ever lived. You can't drive around alone with it. Well, this is Lord so-and-so. This is Lord so-and-so. This is Prince so-and-so. And they want to honor everybody who's ever done anything. We want to be remembered for our so-called accomplishments. We want to be thought of as super saints, if there is any such thing. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to be faithful to death. He wants us to be like Christ who was obedient to death. You know, when Philippians says that, that He was obedient to death, It says He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the cross, even the death of the cross. Literally, it means this, that Christ kept humbling Himself by being obedient till He hit the cross and there was no place lower for Him to go. And so He was able to die. And so at death, at the end of our lives, there will be three questions we'll need to be prepared to answer. And a no to any one of them will be eternally fatal. Did you fight? Did you finish? And did you keep the faith? And if the answer is yes to those questions, you'll, you'll have done what thousands and thousands didn't do. You will have persevered to the end. But since we're all still alive, the questions for us are in the present tense. Because if we're not doing it now, there's no reason to think that we'll be doing it then. Are you fighting Now when we say fighting, who are we fighting? The first enemy is me. You know, it's so interesting in the churches, we have an us versus them mentality when it's really us versus us. Christ was very plain that when the church gets its act together, the world is going to sit up and take notice. But we Christians spend so much of our time fighting each other. We're not the enemy. I'm the enemy. 
In our recent newsletter, I quoted Martin. We have a thing called those quotable Puritans. And I had to use this one from Martin Luther, but I designated him as an honorary Puritan so I could squeeze him in. He says, I have the greatest pope, the greatest enemy of my soul within me. It's me. There's so many things about me that need to be fixed. I don't have a whole lot of time to be noticing much else about you. Although I have noticed and some of you need some work. (laughs) Are you fighting you? Are you fighting the remaining corruption in you? Are you buffeting you? Was it Aristotle or Plato that said, Know thyself, K-N-O-W? What does the Bible say? Know thyself, N-O. Are we saying no to us so that we can say yes to Jesus Christ? Am I fighting And the second question I need to ask myself is, am I going to finish? Yes, no matter what it takes. And no matter what it costs. If I have to crawl... You see, this is the interesting thing about the Christian life. As Paul talks about the different varieties of gifts and things, if we could put it in in an athletic context, just like on a, a team, there are different people with different skills and things like that. The funny thing at these Fellowship of Christian Athlete conferences was to see guys who were linemen make a whole team. And they only have athletic skill to do one thing, and that's to push people out of the way. But they get on a basketball team, and they'd all try to drive to the basket. The only thing they could do was take the basket right off the court. They couldn't do layups. They couldn't do hook shots. They can't do anything over their head because everything they do is right here with weights and everything else. All they've ever been in shape to do is to run five yards and then turn around and get back in the huddle. But there's a place for that because if you put a wide receiver on the front line, the quarterback's a dead man. And so some are going to be sprinters who are long-distance men in this race. There's going to be tortoises and hares. I'm a tortoise. I'm going to get across the finish line on my hands and knees, heaving as I go. But I am going to finish. That's the question. And then the third question is this. Are you preserving the faith, the same one that's been once for all delivered to the saints? You know, if you study church history, you see two things that for 2,000 or more years has been the same fight that the Christian church has been going over and over again, fighting the same battles, always within her own ranks, One is the inerrancy of Scripture, and two is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we're fighting those same battles in Christian churches all the time today. William Goode said in 1626, We do not defeat Satan by taking away what is his. We defeat Satan by keeping him from taking away what is ours. That's pretty good. That's Paul saying, stand firm. Paul told believers in 1 Corinthians 9 to run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Now from that verse, you'd think that winning was the goal because the prize only goes to one person, right? But that's not the case. Look back at verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4. You see, he says this, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord 
the righteous judge will give to me on that day. Now watch. And not to me only, but to all who have loved His appearing. Do you see it? Paul fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And for doing that, he wins. What does he win? He wins the crown of righteousness. And the Greek word there means the garland that was placed on the head of the winning athlete at the end of the race. But if we keep reading, we see this, and not to me only, but to all who have loved His appearing. You see, we're all going to finish tied for first. Because there won't be any second place Christians in heaven. And no third place, and no honorable mention. And this is not only a crown, it's a crown of righteousness. The language allows for a couple different interpretations. It could be the righteousness is the source of the crown or the nature of the crown. And the latter is certainly more indicative of Paul's other teaching. By fighting, by finishing, and by keeping, all who love Christ's appearing will be given a crown of righteousness, the very righteousness of the Redeemer, granted in full perfection to a now sanctified and glorified believer. And it will be a reward to each true believer individually given by the righteous judge himself, God. And all of that, because not because we won, but because we fought. Not because we won, because we finished. Not because we won, but because we kept the faith. And do you see how disproportionate the labor is to the reward What if God said, if you don't finish first, you get nothing? No, all He says is, you finish, you win. We just came out with a book. No, it will be the next set of books we come out with by William Gurnall. Some of you may have read his masterpiece, The Christian in Complete Armor. And this is the rest of what he ever wrote. It's called The Christian's Labor and Reward. And he makes that point. God asks so little of us compared to what He gives us as a reward. What? For 30, 40, 50 years we're asked to self-deny, to say no to ourselves, to buffet our bodies, and we get an eternal reward of glory, and we think there's some equality there? But it's always this way. God asks so little and He gives so much in return. What an amazing God. And that's the marks of being a successful Christian. You fight. You finish. And you guard the truth that's been once for all delivered to the saints with your very life because your very life depends on it. And for those three things, God will sanctify us wholly, make us like Himself, give us a crown of righteousness, and welcome us into His presence forever and ever and ever. Such a deal. Shall we pray? Father, we do indeed thank You that You don't ask us to win, that You just ask us to finish and to fight, and to guard the truth. May we be encouraged 
that all of those make us successful and that we know that we will one day hear these words, well done. May it be true of each and every person here in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now you want to ask questions. I always think that the... uh, Okay. Okay. I guess that wraps it up. <laughs> In your perspective, you, you said something that the, um, the Puritans uh, basically saw their children as pagans, forbid them to pray and like just uh, one prayer, and were on their knees to be being prayed for their souls. How does that fit with the covenant promises of God? I'll be a God to you and your seed after you, which we usually assume means they are Christians and maybe already born again until they prove otherwise. Right. And, and the, all right. The question is: the Puritans um, saw their children as little sinners, not little saints. Forbid them to pray prayers of intercession, not prayers of any kind, but prayers of intercession. And how does that fit? with what many people understand as covenant promises, I will be a God to you and your seed. Okay, And this is a difference between uh, the Dutch strain of Calvinism and the English and American strain of Calvinism. That uh, some of the English Puritans, for example, and even in the Westminster Confession, uh, Cornelius Burgess was one of those who believed in baptismal regeneration of elect infants. And it tends to go more towards the Dutch strain that our children are elect, they are regenerated when they are baptized, and they must give demonstrative proof to the contrary before we deal with them that way. Uh, Some people, particularly up in Grand Rapids, for example, uh, think it's absolutely wrong to evangelize covenant children because they assume, if it's not presumptive regeneration, it's assumptive regeneration, that these are elect children, and they may have already been converted. They may not be converted by their baptism, but they're converted at their baptism. Is that fair? Is that a fair assessment of how that argument goes? (laughs) Well, then I guess I'll keep talking. Um, What the Puritans saw is this, that the promise is to you and your seed, you and your children, but there's a comma there, not a period as many as God shall call to Himself. That it was not a blanket promise to everybody who's in the lineal line of Abraham, but who's in the spiritual line of Abraham. In other words, those who are of faith are Abraham's seed. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who's a child of Abraham in the physical line is a child of Abraham who was the father of the faithful. And so what the bulk of the English and American Puritans did was to not assume anything, and I'm actually going to talk about this uh, is it tonight and tomorrow, a little bit more at length, that these are little, uh, I'll just, the, the children will hear this tonight, Dr. Gerstner said that Ab- uh, Edwards used to call his children little vipers. And then he mentioned that once at a conference with Henry Krabendam from Covenant College, who reminded him, Dr. Gerstner, these may be little vipers, but they are in covenantal diapers. Uh, 
Now, it just again depends on what you, how you interpret hermeneutically the promise. Was it to every child of Abraham? Is every child who is baptized regenerate and elect? Or not? Do we treat them as little sinners or as little saints? And that is a different strain of theology in the Puritans themselves and in Calvinists today. So uh, I'll just let it go at that because we're going to talk about it at more length tonight and tomorrow night. And, and you may disagree totally with the way I present it, and that's okay. I'll hit and run. I'll be out of here Friday. <laughs> My phone number's unlisted, and I only speak at this camp every 55 years, so you'll recover before you're inviting me back. Any other questions? Yes. What makes the children of believers any different than who? The neighbor kids. Well, there are certain blessings to being a covenant child. Uh, I mean, Moses, for example, was almost killed by God for not circumcising his children. But there, were, there are temporal benefits, for example. In Puritan New England, it was uh, guaranteed to be worth uh, thousands of dollars, and if you ran for office, uh, thousands of votes just to be the son of a preacher. Because people so esteemed the ministers and such things as that. But there are so many benefits that they're almost without number. One, even if your children aren't saved yet, the fact that you brought them here to hear the gospel in a variety of ways gives them advantage over the neighbor kids. Now, Baptists don't take it that way. I remember uh, Alistair Begg went up to Sinclair Ferguson one time after hearing Sinclair talk about the benefits of covenant children. And Alistair said, do you think your kids have any more advantage before God than mine do? And Sinclair says, absolutely, Alistair. Why don't you get your kids baptized like you ought? You've got a Scottish Baptist and a Scottish Presbyterian going over the same thing, you see. But there are temporal benefits and eternal. But the neighbor's kids probably aren't being taken to church. Well, you can't get saved unless you hear the gospel. There's a benefit right there. Probably your children, I assume if you're a professing believer, are seeing a Christian example, which the neighbor kids aren't. I assume they're getting all kinds of familial input and discipline and instruction, which the neighbor kids probably aren't. I mean, there's just an endless list of benefits like that uh, that go along with being in covenant. Also, you've got a room full of people who vowed before God to pray for covenant children, to do all that lies within them to bring them to faith, I think those benefits alone would be worth it. Anybody else? Sir? Well, see, the idea of saying your children are holy, that's where all kinds of people part company. That some say it means that if you've got one believing parent, that child is guaranteed salvation. Okay? Well, nobody's guaranteed salvation. But some make it mean that they're already set apart. See? Some make it mean that that just means they have greater benefits. That the, the word sanctified doesn't always mean holy. It simply means set apart like a sanctuary. And it's how people interpret that passage that is the difference between all the strains of Reformed theology. Sir, I hate it when the professionals ask questions. Go ahead. Oh, I know it. I've found that out already.
understood to be in conflict uh, with that. You know, I fought for the fight. I kept the faith. I finished the course. Uh, that sounds like uh, Paul was expecting his reward for what we might call uh, covenantal faithfulness. Uh, could you uh, comment on, on uh, the relationship? I'm not sure what you've asked me. Okay, I understand the question now. It it appears, here's the question, it appears as if Paul is saying he's earned something because he fought the good fight, finished the course, kept the faith, and yet he was also the great proponent of justification by faith alone. How do those two mesh? Is that the question you've asked? Okay. Uh, We would have to take all that Paul has said into account. We couldn't say this is a summation of his theology, and simply the crown of righteousness is for all who love Christ. He says that in verse 8. All who've loved the day of his appearing. Okay? The reward, it can't be a reward because you think you've earned it, and we can't earn anything from a God who requires perfection. So sometimes we look at a passage of Scripture and we say, well, I, I can't be dogmatic about what it does say, but I can certainly be dogmatic about what it doesn't say. And if Paul was suggesting he'd earned a reward, the reward of salvation, then Paul would be contradicting other places of Paul. But I think that we are told to lay up treasures in heaven. In fact, we're disobeying Jesus Christ if we don't, but these are rewards of grace, not rewards of merit. I mean, everything, as as Paul says and as Spurgeon says, it's all of grace. The fact that God decides to give us anything for our meager efforts, our sin-stained efforts, is certainly gracious on his part. But Paul would be contradicting Paul. And the idea is that there's some teaching today that you actually can merit salvation and they're tampering with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, and it's, it's in Reformed churches. And uh, it's a fight that some of us feel that we have to fight to keep the faith that's once for all been tra- entrusted to us. If that doctrine is true, then we've been wrong in teaching what we've been teaching for 2,000 years. And uh, there's some of us that are committed to the old paths and we're putting our uh, souls on the line to, uh, to guard it. And there's some who are starting to veer off from what has been traditional Reformed teaching. But Paul is not contradicting Paul on the issue of meriting salvation. The Q's were better than the A's, I guarantee it.